Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Romans chapter 13, if you're just joining us, we are working through the book of Romans verse by verse. Uh, We are in a section here where we are being told um, uh, how the Christian is to live uh, in this world, how we are to interact with various groups of people. And in verses one through seven here, we are seeing how the Christian is to interact with governing authorities. Uh, While you're turning, just one thing I want to pass on. Uh, to you is uh, in Sunday school, which I highly encourage you guys uh, to come to if you're not already. Uh, we've been working through a study of church history. We're just taking a year and a half and just, just kind of doing a brief jet tour uh, through how Jesus has been fulfilling his promise to build his church. Uh, Pastor Ben's been doing that. It's been phenomenal. Some of these weeks I want to stand up and, and, and cheer just uh, some of what he's been pointing out. Um, I, I asked him if I could take a couple of weeks in that. Uh, Some of that is because in preparation for Romans 13, uh, I I did a lot of reading in church history, just seeing just how the church has developed its understanding of these things. I have just hours and hours of stories uh, that I could tell. And so I wanted to share at least some of those, um, the kinds of things that don't really fit in a sermon, but that are helpful to understand from church history. So I'm going to take a couple of weeks next week and the week after that to look at some of those things. So invite you to come out. Let's look to the text, Romans 13. Let's read one through seven and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. Beginning in verse one. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's go to the Lord. A great God in heaven, we ask that you will Lead us to the knowledge of your truth. Lead us to right conclusions. Bless our thoughts. Bless uh, everything that's going to happen in this time, O Lord, that you will not only teach us the specifics of the things we're talking about today, but Lord, that you show us bigger pictures, your glory and how you designed this world, the order and the wisdom that you have uh, uh, put as statutes into this creation Bless us to understand your will, your purposes, Lord, and how ultimately all of it, 
all of it is summed up in, in the gospel, how all of it points to the Lord Jesus who will one day sit um, in, in that all will bow before him. So, Father, we pray that you give us help uh, in this time of study. Please give me help, um, make me useful, uh, set a guard over my lips that I'll say only what's true. Anything that I say that's wrong, I pray that it will be forgotten, O oh God. And Lord, all of us as we worship, we pray that we'll receive your word humbly as children, meet it with faith, with the resolve to obey it. Lead us, O oh God. We love you, Lord, and pray you'll glorify your name, and we ask it all through the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, during the Middle Ages, there's a situation that uh, developed that seems uh, basically impossible for us today. And that is that the, the church in the Western world, the church in that day became perhaps the most powerful force on earth. Now, understand what I mean by that. The church is always the most powerful force on earth. God has given to the church the message of the gospel, that, that we announce to the world uh, the news so that souls can be rescued from wrath, to have eternal life. The church is always the most powerful force on earth, even if it doesn't seem that way. But what I mean is, is that even in an earthly sense, the church came to a place of prominence where they actually crowned and dethroned kings. As, as Pastor mentioned this morning in, in, in Sunday school, there was actually a day during uh, John Wycliffe's time when the nation of England was given as a possession to the church. Now, we could hear that um, and think, huh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> What, what, what a great idea. It would be amazing for the church to have that kind of uh, power and influence. It just sounds like utopia. Actually, it was a disaster. And the reason is because this is not what God made the church to be and to do. There's a principle in the world that anytime a person or a group leaves the God-ordained purpose that he gave to them, and they go try to do something else, it ends up in embarrassment. It doesn't go well. Okay, a 275-pound offensive lineman can do a really good job at his job. But if he tries to talk the coach into letting him play quarterback, it's not going to go well. Okay, uh, his body was made for something and it ain't that, not made for the nimble work of a quarterback. Uh, similarly, when we talk about God's design for male and female, that if a man tries to act like a woman and fulfill responsibilities that God gave to a woman, it's not going to go well and, and vice versa. And similarly, when the church tries to do something that is outside of what God gave us to do, and we, we try to go put our hands into something that's not our wheelhouse, not that sphere of authority that God gave us, it ends up disastrous. We end up shirking um, the, the great privilege that we have been given in fulfilling the work that he has given, and we end up failing in what we try to do. And similarly, when the state, when the government 
tries to leave its realm of authority that God has given it and tries to reach its tentacles into areas it was not intended by God to control, the result is disastrous. God has ordained different institutions to fulfill different purposes, and he has given each one of them authority to fulfill their purpose. So we, we've introduced this, this concept here. Uh, last week I had you kind of imagine on the wall behind me uh, four circles, and inside of each of those circles there was a, a name written, the individual, the family, the church, and the state, and inside of each of those circles, God has given a list of responsibilities and he has given authority to do them. One, one of the youth in the church uh, actually painted a picture for me that has that uh, drawn up there and the big circle around it that says Jesus owns it all. I, I love it, it's in my office, you can see it afterwards. But we, we've begun uh, looking through uh, God's uh, in, intention, God's design of authority, and we're talking about how all, the purpose of all of them with the intention of understanding God's design for government. And in our text for this morning, the, the points, the truths we're going to consider this morning, we see that God has given to the state a certain power as a part of their authority. Government has a job to do, and God has delegated, he has granted authority to the government to do that job, and he has also given them power, okay, meaning the ability to muster force in order to do their job. Um, so I'm gonna combine um, in, in our outline, if you've got a bulletin with you, I've got the outline there, I'm gonna combine points numbers four and seven today because they just kind of make sense that the truths go together. Point number four is opposing lawful authority results in punishment, and that comes from verse two. And then point number seven is civil authority has the right from God to bear the sword. And we see that in verse number four. So I'm going to get us started here. We're going to look at the text. We're going to make sure we understand what the language is actually saying. And then we're going to talk about the bigger picture um, in understanding this. So let's get started by examining the text again. If you, if you look at verse two, once again, I'm going to show you where we draw these things. So in verse two, in the first part there, it says, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. We talked about that last week. And then here is point number four. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So here's the, here's the logical reasoning that the Holy Spirit is leading Paul to lay out here. Um, government is ordained by God in his purposes. Because of this, okay, so next step, because of this, we are to submit to lawful authorities. Next step, if we do not, then there is condemnation. Okay, what, 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 what kind of condemnation is this talking about? Is this condemnation from God, or is this condemnation from the government, from the state? Well, uh, look at verse 4. Okay, what we see there is God has given to governing rulers, civil authorities, the right of the sword. We're going to talk about what that means today. What it means, though, is that they have a legitimate authority from God to use force. And then look at verse 5. In verse 5, we see, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience 
sake. So we, we should be in submission to the governing authorities in their lawful jurisdiction for conscience sake first, because God has ordained it, okay? And we, okay, if you are in Christ, we love him. We want to please our Lord. We, if we sin against God, our conscience is afflicted and the Christian does not want to live like this. We do not want to rebel against the law of the Lord that we love and we submit to. So we should obey for that purpose. But there's another reason that we should, what the text is saying. Because of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath or the state's wrath? It is referring to the state's wrath. Uh, God has given them the authority to use uh, power. So part of what we are saying is that the, the state um, has legitimate authority from God to use force. They have, the, they have the permission from God to do this. So if you remember, we've really paid attention closely to the definition of the word authority. Okay, so authority is different from uh, power. So a man with a gun who walks into a bank, he has power. Okay, but he doesn't have the right to do what he is doing. He's trying to rob the bank. He doesn't have the right, but he does have power. Authority is the right, the delegation from God as this. What we're being told here in this text is that governing leaders have authority, but God has also ordained that they have power, the right to use force. Um, you know, there's a, there's a popular saying coming from some political ideas that if it's not voluntary, then it's tyranny. And certainly that statement would apply to some areas, but the Christian can't just blanketedly say that's the definition of tyranny. Because according to the Bible, what we are seeing is that God has ordained civil authorities, he's given them a jurisdiction, and he has given them authority to use force. Now, in later points, like next week in point number five, we're really going to have a lot of talk on what is the job of the state? What exactly is their function? What is their jurisdiction? Part of what we're going to see is they are only to use force in the legitimate, uh, in, in the legitimate jurisdiction that they've been given in upholding just and righteous laws. So the state doesn't have authority from God to just do whatever they want. The state doesn't have the right to just invade other nations just as they desire to steal riches or land. Uh, the state does not have the right to massacre its citizens or any of those things and then say, well, Romans 13 says you have to obey me. We can't exactly imagine our government saying that today, but back in the Scottish Covenanters days that I've told you about, this is exactly what King Charles told the people. He was murdering citizens and said, Romans 13 says you have to submit to me. So does Romans 13 actually mean that? No, it does not. Romans 13 outlines that the state is to remain within the circle of influence, the circle of authority that God has given to them. And then, of course, you have to have a discussion on where do we come to understand what just and righteous laws are. We'll look at some of those later. But what we're seeing for now is that God has given lawful, legitimate authority to the state to use force. So before, before I go any further, just one just kind of quick application to take from that is, be careful about drawing your ideas about the world, citizens, government, all of these things. Be careful from drawing your ideas from purely political sources, okay? There is 
no political party in the United States that bases its platform on the Word of God. Every single one of them draws their ideas from the wisdom of secular man, which will get you crumbling and destruction. That we, and, and if you read the Bible, study the Bible, you will find uh, that, that the political parties we have, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Tea Party, Constitutionalist, whatever else you may list out, not one of them says the Word of God is the standard by which we will submit ourselves. So be very careful, Christian, in your alignment with these uh, parties and ideas and, and from drawing your beliefs from purely political sources. If you are in Christ, you are a Christian before you are anything. Jesus is Lord is the banner that flies over our life. You may decide to vote for certain candidates and maybe most of the time go with certain parties, but you need to know where your allegiance lies, okay? Don't, don't put a tattoo on your chest of some political party, okay? Because okay, that's, that's where Jesus belongs, okay? That may not be the best application of what I had in mind there. Okay, you understand where I am going with this. We must be biblical. We must be biblical even when it is inconvenient, we must be biblical even when your circle of buddies from your political party hates a conclusion you come to, but you come to it from the Bible. We must be biblical and then try to influence the world. But the Bible is showing here that the state has the right of force. Let me approach it kind of like this. We've talked about the various authorities that God has established on the earth. Uh, so, so four I've mentioned is the individual, the family, the church, and the state. To understand the state's role, think through God's design for some of these various groups. So here's a for instance. God has not given to the church the right of the sword, but he has given it to the state. So, th so think through what this means. In all of the instructions that you see God give to uh, the, the church in Scripture, you will never find instruction to that kind of work, the work of war or uh, justice in that kind of way, in that kind of uh, upholding it with the sword. In fact, we see something very different about what our calling is as the church. To show you some of this, jump with me to the book of John, please. John chapter 18, there's a really helpful section here. John 18, we pick up in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has betrayed Jesus, and the soldiers show up to arrest him. And here we pick up in a section and see some things that happen. Now, this is another one of those occasions where uh, the, the Bible indirectly speaks to hundreds of subjects. And it is intentional by God. I hope to show that to you here. Uh, we are going to see Jesus address some things. So John 18, start with me in verse 4. And read a little section with me. Verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, okay, meaning the crucifixion, the suffering, etc., went forth and said to them, the soldiers, because they've just showed up, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Now the word he is added by modern translations. It would be better if it wasn't there because Jesus is saying, 
I am. There's a declaration of deity there. That's not our point here. I'm just trying to point it out. Jesus says, I am. And Judas also, who is betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these, referring to the apostles, go their way to fulfill the word which he had spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter then having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now, in some of the other gospels, we learned that not only did Jesus tell Peter, put the sword away, but he also picked up Malchus's ear, okay, put it back on his head in a miracle. And Jesus said to Peter, do you not know that those who live by the sword also die by the sword? Now, Remember that I've, I've told you on a number of occasions that very often in the Bible, uh, God will, will bring about some event, there will be some miracle take place, and there are truths we are supposed to see about that specific moment, but that God is also teaching greater principles, bigger truths, okay? Like Jesus heals the blind man, yeah, there's a lot to see in that immediate thing, but the Bible then takes that as an illustration to say there are bigger things being preached about all of mankind. We have another one of those moments right here. There's something that happens in the moment, but it's also meant to speak to bigger things. Jesus told Peter in a sense, it is not the work of his followers to swing the sword in the work of building the kingdom. Now, I'm going to show you that in some other passages as well. And, and by the way, you're referring to our introduction about groups of people uh, leaving their God-ordained purpose to go try to do something else. Peter here tries to uh, build the kingdom of God using the sword. How does it work out? Not very well. He tries to take a head. He only manages an ear, and then he gets rebuked by Jesus, okay? So it, Peter tries to do this. It doesn't go well. There's a principle being taught here, but we see more of it taught later. So you're still in John 18. Look down further in the text and come to verse 33. What happens is Jesus has been arrested. He's brought before Pilate. Remember, we talked some about that last week. He's brought before Pilate, and Pilate begins to question him. Pick up in verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Pause there. Caesar allowed there to be no other rivals to himself. Uh, the, 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 the accusation brought against Jesus by the Jews to the Roman authorities was, this is how they were trying to get Jesus killed is, he is guilty of treason because he's trying to make himself equal with Caesar or something. So that's the line of reasoning here. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this 
realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So do you see some of the point that is being made in this part right here? Jesus said, if I were a king of this physical realm, and that's what this was, then my people would be gathering swords and they would be storming this praetorium right now. But my kingdom is of another realm. The church is the one institution of this earth whose citizens are citizens of a kingdom that is not of this physical world. The church is the one institution. There is nothing else like it. The church is the one institution that our life, our hope, our citizenship is in another realm. We are, we are comprised of otherworldly citizens, citizens of heaven. And we are laboring to bring the kingdom of God to earth in greater power. But here is part of the point. To do that, we do not use the sword. Or maybe to rephrase it, we do not use a physical sword. But what is the message of the gospel called in the New Testament? It is called the sword of the Spirit. So Christian, yes, by all means, labor for the kingdom of God and use a sword. Somebody's going to take that little clip and say, do something really bad with it. Labor for the kingdom of God and use a sword. But do not use a pathetic, little puny, physical sword, or substitute your favorite battle rifle, because that is the figurative language here. Labor for the kingdom of God, but don't use that. It's pathetic compared to the gospel, compared to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ that awakens the dead from, from, to life. Don't use something so pathetic. We are citizens of another realm, another kingdom, and we have work to do. So yes, by all means, Christian, take land for the kingdom of God. But we do it in a different way. The work of the church is, is not bloody revolution. It is not the work of, of a battle rifle. The work of the church is the work of bringing the kingdom of God by the work of the gospel. You are to advance on enemy territory. You are to take new lands for the kingdom whose colors you fly, but your sword is the gospel the church does not bear the physical sword of the earth. Now, there, of course, are questions that come out of it, come out of that, and, and it's very much uh, relative to our subject we're talking about today. So let's, let's think on that a little bit. Some have seen this account of Jesus telling Peter to put his sword away, and they have said, see, Jesus calls all of us to be pacifist. Now, we've already addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount, but again, remember, no. The Bible doesn't contradict the Bible. We've already seen the Bible show. <clears throat> We've already seen the, excuse me. <clears throat> we have already seen the Bible show uh, the right of self-defense and et cetera. And we'll talk about a little bit more. So th that is not a legitimate conclusion, but also remember this. When Peter drew the sword 
on that night, the night of the betrayal. Do you remember why Peter had a sword to begin with? It's because Jesus told him to carry one. In that account, <clears throat> so if you remember back to earlier before that night, the night of the betrayal, when Jesus sent out the 70, he sent out the 70 and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. We looked at that text in Matthew 10. He sent them out and he told them, when you go, bring no money, bring no extra clothes and bring no sword. What was the point in that? He was teaching them, God will provide everything you need. Don't, don't, don't even bring a penny for you to buy your own food with. God is going to provide everything that you need. He was demonstrating this. And we take from that, that when we go out in the work of the gospel, God will provide everything that we need. But later in Luke 22, which is the night of the betrayal, right before this event we read in John 18, in Luke 22, Jesus said this to them. He said, do you remember when I sent you out? And I told you to bring no money, uh, no clothes, and no sword. Well, now I tell you, bring money. Bring an extra set of clothes. And then here's a quote from Luke 22. I think it's 36. Let he who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Okay. So what, what, what's the point there? Well, what Jesus was teaching is this principle that though he did work something more miraculous when the 70 went out that first time, bringing no money, no clothes, no sword, and all of their provision and protection was provided by God. Well, he's teaching the principle now that God will still be with you. God is still with us. But what is the most normal way that God works? The normal way that God works is he uses means. He uses normal earthly means. So God can provide for you like he did for Elijah, but he doesn't want you to quit your job, go live by a creek and wait for the ravens to bring you bread. He does provide for us, but how does he provide? Through your work, through your job. God is the one providing, but he uses earthly means. Jesus was teaching that principle in Luke 22. And so he told the apostles, go buy a sword. And in Luke 22, right after Jesus said that, when he said, buy a sword, one of the apostles then said, look, Lord, we have two of them right here. And Jesus said, it is enough. Now, what does that mean? Well, if Jesus had been telling them to outfit themselves to storm the Capitol, okay, uh, I'm going to be arrested, but you come rescue me at the Praetorium there. He would have told them, you need a lot more swords. But he said, it is enough. So what is Jesus getting at? Well, he was getting at the same reason why they should bring money and clothes with them on their journeys. As the apostles later would go out and they would go bring the gospel to distant lands, they encountered gangs of thieves and wild beasts. Paul encountered and had to fight wild beasts in his journeys for the gospel. This is what Jesus is getting at. Okay, so when he told them to buy the sword, he's getting at self-defense and the protection that is there. The so that's what the sword was for, but the sword was not for the building of the kingdom of God. The sword was not for that. That's not how we do it. The church has been granted a great deal of authority. It is amazing how much authority Jesus has granted the church, but our authority is in our realm of responsibility. We haven't been granted authority to rule as civil law. 
That's not our job. Now, listen, we have the job of influencing civil authority. So we are not, this is not saying that we are to be totally hands off and never speak to laws. No, that's our job. That exactly is in our realm of influence. We announce truth to the world and we are doing our job. We are seeking to influence kings and rulers and judges and justices. That is our realm of responsibility. But when it comes to the right of the sword on earth, we leave that to those to whom it is ordained. We are not called, uh, the church is not called to go declare war, physical war in that kind of way. We have a different lane that we are to stay in. So the church does not have the right of the earthly sword. But now here's another question to clarify. Individuals within the church may serve in civic responsibilities. Individuals within the church may be elected as a judge and so use the sword in justice or may join the military and so serve with the sword and etc. So this isn't saying Christians are never involved in this thing. What it is saying is that the church as an institution does not bear the sword. Uh, Christian, there are times where a Christian must, must bear the sword. If, if our nation is being attacked, if your uh, community is under attack, the, a Christian may and at times ought, must step up and engage in this way. But the distinction that's being made here is as an institution, that's not our realm of authority. We need to know what the role of the church is. We need to know what the role of the state is. And so, so now watch this as we're trying to clarify things. I think this is incredibly helpful. Here is how some theologians have said it. The family has been granted the rod. The government has been granted the sword. And the church has been granted the keys. Isn't that helpful? Like the, the, the art, the, the, the poetry of the Bible, this, these kinds of images, this is just so helpful. It's just brilliant. So let me flesh these out a little bit, and this will help us in our understanding of the role of the state. Let me start with the family. The family is the most basic institution created by God, and it has been, a grant, it has been granted authority from God to fulfill its duty and its responsibilities. And as a poetic symbol of that, you can think of the rod. Now, if you're new to studying the Bible, this is referring to the Bible's instructions, the Bible's commands to fathers and mothers to bring their children up in the instruction, nurture, and discipline of the Lord. Scripture commands parents to discipline their children. The book of Proverbs says that if uh, fathers will not discipline their children, okay, and it, it says the word rod, and I know that that can sound like a bat and abusive. That's not what it's referring to. It is referring to a spank and a swat, okay? It is referring to uh, biblical discipline. But Proverbs says that if a parent will not do this, then the father hates his child because he doesn't love him enough to do what is good for him, what he needs. And there's a whole theology behind why. Why are parents to discipline children? Because we are sinners by nature. We are born into this world with foolishness and selfishness and a the possibility to be a savage monster is inside of every one of us. We need Lots of formation, not only discipline, but there's a principle to see 
Uh, parents' instruction, counsel, etc., it is predicated on something. It is predicated on the use of force. It is predicated upon when I give you instructions, you need to do this because if not, there is discipline that will come. If you have questions about that, if this is new to you, if you think this sounds crazy, the biblical perspective, I'd be happy to sit down and have a longer conversation with you. But for now, you just need to see, this is just clearly what the Bible says. We humans need this. Your children need this. And yes, we're completely aware of the psychobabble uh, that is out there of the uh, attempt to reason with your three-year-old not to run out into traffic, okay? Um, that's not working, okay? It's not biblical and it's not working, okay? This is what is prevalent in society, and it's not working. It's crumbling, okay? You may think I'm getting off track. This is actually all related. Every bit of this is related to when we talk about the state and the use of force. But here, here's a principle. The only way children will be raised to a right and good maturity is through demanding that they submit to authority. So you see, that's very different than the world's take on these things of I try to bribe and beg my kid to do what I want them to do. You can bribe your kid and get them to do some of what you want them to do. And you may feel justified and <laughs> see, look, look at me, it worked. Okay, you have, you have lied to them about reality. You have made them believe that they are not under authority. And Proverbs says they will not fear God and they will not fear hell. But by discipline, you are teaching the reality that they are under authority. There is a God who is the judge, and there is a consequence to rebelling against his rule. Parents, you are to make your children mind you. Okay, so I know it sounds like I'm getting off track, but part of what we're, we're showing here is how this connects to the, the symbol. So there's more that a parent is to do. But the rod is a symbol. Um, yesterday, uh, I was here with, with my two youngest kids, and they were riding their bikes out in the, the driveway here, and there was a tractor brush hogging. And, when I, and I went out, and I gave them instructions about how far to stay away from this tractor and things. And when I said it, I didn't growl and wasn't angry. I didn't say, if you don't do this, I'm going to beat you. Didn't say any of those things. I just gave an instruction in love, and they responded back with something like, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like, yes, Father. You're, you're the greatest daddy in all the world. I mean, it wasn't exactly, it was something like that. Okay, but, but my point is, okay, my point is this. I didn't threaten the rod. I didn't use the rod. It wasn't angry. It was an interaction, all of love, but understand this. All of that was dependent upon the reality that throughout their childhood, they have been made, they have been de demanded of them that they submit to authority or there is a consequence. And because of that, it produces, it's not always that beautiful, but at that time, a little beautiful interaction that was there. And so even though um, no rod was threatened, the rod as a symbol still applies. Well, consider now the next, the church. The church as a sphere of authority has been granted the keys. And of course, this is referring to Matthew 16. Jesus asked, asked the apostles, who do people say that I am? And then they responded. Then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then said this, 
I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I believe the rock is the statement that Peter had made there, the confession that Jesus is the Christ. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loose in heaven. The church is charged with a list of tasks, and those tasks are laboring for the kingdom of heaven. We, we preach the word of God. We gather together in worship. Uh, we administer the ordinances. We make disciples. We uh, practice church discipline, which is part of the authority. Uh, uh, we we uh, announce truth to the world. We also, as a part of that, we pronounce the woes and curses that come to those who reject Jesus as Lord, and etc. okay? We can picture that with the symbol of keys. Because as we announce the news of the gospel that anyone who will embrace Jesus Christ, anyone who will place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the church helps walk people to walk, follow Christ all of their days, it's like we are opening the door to the kingdom of heaven for them, okay? It's not us, it's God, we understand that, but this is the means he's chosen to use. So we walk people to the door and we open the door for them. There are keys that open. But also, as we announce the warnings and the judgments the scripture speaks on those who reject the gospel, we declare to them that if you reject Christ, the door is closed. There are keys that lock, keys that shut. This is our work. This is our wheelhouse. The work of the church is not bloody revolution. The work of the church is not physical warfare. The church's work is revolution, but it's a different kind. It is a revolution of ideas. The, the church's work is warfare, but it's, it's a spiritual warfare. We use different weapons. We use prayer. We use worship. We use truth. That's our wheelhouse. So you can picture the job and the authority of the church in the form of keys. Well, then also, the state's job can be pictured with the symbol of the sword. So what exactly, what does that mean? How's the, how's the state supposed to use the sword? Well, let me, let me mention a couple of legitimate uses of the sword, and then I'll talk about some illegitimate uses. First and most significantly, it is brought up from this passage. It'll be a point that we make later, probably next week. The principal work of the state is that of upholding justice. And so the sword is referring to the death penalty in the execution of justice. God has given government the power of the sword and the authority of the sword for punishing evil doers. If you remember back to our first sermon in the series, and we talked about the very first word that the Bible has to say regarding government roles and etc. is Genesis 9, 6. Noah and his family stepped off of the ark into this kind of new creation. God gave them uh, instructions. And one of the things he said was this, whoever sheds man's blood, 
by man his blood shall be shed. God was commissioning mankind with holding murderers accountable. Men would need to assemble together in order to exercise justice. So as, as a by the way there, Christians sometimes ask, should we support the death penalty? The answer is absolutely yes. And not only that, but the whole principle of justice is predicated upon this understanding. When justice is not upheld, society crumbles. Case in point. The second legitimate use of the sword is that of the power to make war. Now, just as the church throughout history has come to greater understanding on the roles of church and state, etc., the church has also developed more understanding when it comes to the principles of what makes a war a just one or an unrighteous one. Meaning the state doesn't just have authority from God to go make war as they please. They do not have authority to just go steal land and riches, but they do have authority to engage in wars that have a just cause. The easiest of those to understand is that of defense of the nation. It's not the only, but it is the easiest to understand. But now, the illegitimate use of the sword. The state does not have the right to just use the sword in any way that they please. And when a state uses the sword unjustly, Okay, and meaning they use force, even if it's not just the death penalty, but uses force in a way that is unrighteous. They leave that circle of jurisdiction that God has given them and they tread into other people's territory. The state does not have the right to put people to death as it pleases. It doesn't have the right uh, to imprison people just as it pleases. The, the state has an obligation from God to stay within the jurisdiction that it is given by God. And whose job is it to tell them what that is? It is the church. The church's job is to announce that truth to the world. It, its authority, the state's authority, is in the upholding of just law. Now, to see some of that, this isn't just my opinion, to see some of that, consider the very man who wrote these words in Romans 13 that we are studying, led by the Holy Spirit, that man, Paul, he is the same man who, when he was being arrested by a Roman soldier, and the Roman soldier was going to strip him and beat him without trial, what did Paul do? He called that man to task and said, you do not have the authority to do this. And similarly, when Paul was going to be unjustly arrested at Damascus, what did Paul do? He gave the soldiers the slip and he uh, snuck out a window in order to flee. That was illegal. <laughs> but what was he doing? The state was leaving its realm of authority. So let's be clear. If you break a legitimate law and the authorities come to arrest you, you should not flee. You should submit to justice. But what do we see? What did we see David do when King Saul was acting unjustly? What did he do? He fled. That was illegal. That was against the law. But he fled from the, the, the power of Saul. Peter fled 
prison. Why? He was being held unjustly. Paul fled. He, why? It was unjust. So you see the point. Rulers have a circle of authority that God has given them, and they are to stay within their bounds. Each authority is to stay within their jurisdictions. Now, we still have to have conversation later about what does that always look like? We'll come there at a later time. But considering all of this, in thinking through these various authorities that God has established, all of this is the basis for why we believe that the church and the state should be separate. Now, follow closely because there's been a lot of misunderstanding about this, uh, even in the last couple of years. That language, that historic language of the separation of church and state it is actually um, an affirmation of the very truths that we have been talking about here. That the authority of the church and the authority of the state, they are separate. God has called them to different duties. Um, there's been a lot of talk here lately about separating church and state, and the great majority of it is just really unintelligent. I'm not trying to be mean by that. I'm just subjectively speaking here. It is not rooted in the historic understanding of these things. I, it is a failure of education. It is a failure of the real study of history. So today, you will often hear when Christians suggest a certain law that the world doesn't like. The world will respond with, you know, not everybody follows your views. Um, you Christians need to keep your noses out of this. What they basically mean is Christians shouldn't be allowed to talk publicly, okay? That's not what this means. They'll say nobody follows your religion, the church and state should be separate. Well then, Christians will sometimes hear the world say that, and Christians know that they disagree, so sometimes they'll respond, in a wrong kind of way, and Christians will respond with something like, no, they should be one. That also is a grievous misunderstanding of these things. What it means that church and state should be separate, okay, which by the way is in our church's constitution, that it is one of our beliefs, is that the church should not try to do the state's job. And the state doesn't have the right to meddle in the things that God has given the church to fulfill. The state does not have the right to tell churches that they're not allowed to meet. The state doesn't have the right to tell churches how they are to partake of the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, has happened over and over again throughout history. The state has tried to direct the church in how they're supposed to take the Lord's Supper. The state doesn't have the right to tell the church how to do baptism. That has happened over and over again in history. The state doesn't have the right to tell the church that they're not allowed to evangelize, to make disciples, to preach the gospel, or to teach truth. Last week we mentioned there are uh, you know, probably close to 100 countries in the world which tries to limit what the church is allowed to speak out their lips. The state does not have the right to try to take authority away that Jesus has given to the church. That's what it means that church and state are to be separate. You know, when people try to say to Christians, you guys need to keep your religion out of it, you need to keep your noses out of all of these things, church and state should be separate. It, it, is, it is incredibly unintelligent but it's also just, it's very blind um, because when they have this idea that you need to keep your religion out of politics, they misunderstand 
that they themselves are bringing their religion into their politics. Every person believes what they believe because of your worldview. Every person believes what they believe because of what you believe about God and his purpose for this world or the rejection of it. And every law is a moral issue. Laws are moral issues. Speed limit laws proceed from the law of love. Do not drive in such a way that you endanger other people. When the fire marshal came here, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, and they did an inspection of our building to make sure that we were up to code, that is an extension of the law of love, and which, by the way, is rooted in the law of Moses. Um, there are certain laws that God gave there, okay? And the basic principle of justice that we ought not endanger people's lives. Every law is a moral issue. Somehow, some way, it comes out of it. The idea that it can be separated is to misunderstand reality. And we, the church, need to once again understand these matters. To, to, to be honest, in the last century at least, the church has lost a lot of ground that is a shame that we have, that we have lost. The church has fallen for some intellectual laziness and has failed to keep up with what has been formed and come to understand throughout history, we need to once again know these things so as to inform the world and our fellow man what this is supposed to look like, and that is in our realm of jurisdiction. God has given to each authority a certain sphere, and each authority is to stay within their bounds. We Christians need to know how this works, we need to live it, and we need to tell the world. And then just one final word, I'll close with this. As the church, our job with the keys is to announce uh, to the world, uh, announce to you the message of the Lord Jesus. There is a door that you will come to when you die. I know everybody always assumes that the door of heaven will just swing wide open to them simply because they breathe or because they think that they are a good person. But what the Bible says is that door will only open to you if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you believe uh, in who he is, but also that you have placed your trust, your hope in him. You must turn to Christ in order to be saved from the wrath that your law breaking of the law of God deserves, saved from the hell that we all deserve, that door will open if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you need to understand, the Bible says the door will be locked to you if you will not put your faith in him. The keys are available. You can be granted access. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it is the job of the church to announce this to the world and call, uh, call all to come to Christ in faith. Let's close in prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you for how you have created this world with all of its wisdom, with all of its order. Lord, we are more and more in awe the more that we learn. You are infinitely wise and we see more of your wisdom in these things. I ask God that you help us as your people, help us to live in obedience, help us to do our job, to fulfill our responsibilities and help us to do it well. And God, I pray for any in the room that has never yet turned to Christ for salvation. I pray, oh God, that you will draw them to yourself and you'll bring them to believe. 
Please be at work. Lord, we're going to dismiss now and head on uh, back to our, um, our, our lives to live and work and things. And this week, I pray that we will walk in obedience. Pray that we will glorify you. Please set good works before us so that we'll walk in them. Bless us to be faithful. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.